Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Mike Sass. Mike is a retired superintendent of schools in Illinois and an amazing educator and school leader. Mike's granddaughters, Charlotte and Kennedy, attend Davidson Day, and he is one of the newest members of our board of trustees. Mike is also the founder and president of Catalyst Academy. Mike, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you very much. So my first question is, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in a south suburb of Chicago, Chicago Heights. It was a blue-collar factory town. And the main thing with my childhood growing up is I remember being like an outside dog. I was outside all the time from sunrise till sunset. It was a great atmosphere where I grew up. And I've spent five years in Illinois, so being outside in the winter, it's, it's rough. Like, what was that like? As I'm 61 years old now, it became increasingly worse as I got older. But as a young child, it just whatever was the season, I enjoyed that season. Yeah. It was summer. We played baseball. We played hockey in the winter and football in the fall. And so who's your baseball team then growing up in Chicago? I was born two blocks from Wrigley Field, so I followed the Chicago Cubs the most. But when I lived on the south side of Chicago in high school, the White Sox were very popular and Bill Veck owned the team, and you'd get to go to games for $1 in 1977. So what about now? Who's the team you root for? Probably the Cubs would still be the team I'd root for. So what was 2016 like then when they won? Ecstatic. Yeah. (laughs) Ecstatic. Great times. Were you in Chicago at the time? No, I was not. We had had moved uh, to California by that time. Yeah, because I was in Lake Forest, Illinois at that time, and it was amazing just the energy and people were so excited. No matter what sports team is winning at the time, when the Bulls in the 90s and the Bears in 85, it was always the whole cities behind them. Yeah, yeah. So why did you decide to study education at Illinois State University? Actually, when I went to Illinois State, I started out as a business major. Okay. And that first semester, I had met some girls that were special education majors and They got me to volunteer at a camp for children with cerebral palsy. And after a little bit of time doing that, I realized, boy, this is is what I'm called to do. And I had a rude awakening, though, to transfer from the business school to the special ed department. You had to have like a 3.8 grade point average, which I did not have at the time. So it was interesting. In order to be a teacher, I had to be more disciplined and be a better student and ultimately got into that program. So what was then the pathway that you went from in the special ed arena in education and then moving into like school leadership and eventually a school superintendent? I started out end of junior year going up to a northwest suburb, which you're familiar with, Arlington Heights, Mm -hmm. and was a teacher with students with physical disabilities. And I did that for a couple, three years. But while I was doing the teaching, the principal had me doing some internship-type activities, helping with some curriculum projects around Mm -hmm. the school district. And after three years of teaching, they pulled me out of the classroom one day a week to do district-level special ed coordination. And then I I left the district and went to another suburban Chicago district in Oak Park for a couple years and did special education directing from their district office in 10 different schools. And after that, moved on to a far western urban community, Aurora, and was a principal. 
So I was an elementary principal for six years, and then part-time in the summers and after-school hours worked in their HR department. And then after a few years of that, I became a superintendent in a small rural district out near Rockford, okay. maybe an hour and a half from Chicago, yep. and spent eight years doing that program. It was a district of about 1,200 students. And then moved back to the suburbs of Chicago in a rapidly growing suburb, New Lenox, and was superintendent there for 15 years at a time when they were growing rapidly and we were building a new school every other year. Wow. So stepping back a little bit, like what was the transition like from working in special ed and then sort of moving into educational leadership? Like what were some of the hurdles you had to overcome? That's a, a great question. I think maybe my expertise and knowledge wasn't always being a curriculum person okay. or having the best curriculum and instruction knowledge, but I felt that I had a good way to make sure I helped and supported staff and helped people achieve their goals. And at the end of the day, I still used my special education background with your multidisciplinary team of people of different backgrounds helping focus on a goal to help a student. And I used that model for everything I did in my career, Yeah, from building schools to hiring teachers to working on programs. So I, I that multidisciplinary process, I learned as a special educator, permeated everything I did as leader. We have a similar sort of pathway. I did a degree in elementary education, but then I did another bachelor's in special ed. And then I went into school administration, similar to you. And I was a fourth grade teacher and then went back and did my special ed degree because what I realized is that I was really well trained at helping kids in the middle who, you know, might be very, very good at certain things, but might have struggled in a little bit in other areas. But then when the kids on the margin, so the ones who were either incredibly gifted or those who had some learning differences, then I felt I was a bit out of my, I felt I was out of my depth, like helping them. And so then I started my special ed degree and just everything, all the training I went through just felt so comfortable working with a wider range of kids. But what I really got into was working with kids with severe behavioral disorders. Like that was something that I was just really fascinated with. Like, how do you take these kids? And, you know, there's obviously a spectrum of that. You have some who are just really, really need intensive support and others who are just tremendously disruptive, right? Like they don't necessarily need full interventions, but just there's certain things you can do in the classroom. And it was amazing how even as a classroom teacher, but then into an administrator, those things I learned about like developing culture, developing simple strategies, not shaming kids, just helped year after year. And then also as a school administrator now, it's is also the same. Like how do you manage a team? How do you work with people? It's very interesting. And so then Talk a little bit more about being a superintendent. You said the school was growing so quickly. Like, how did you manage that level of growth? It was interesting because while you're building schools, it's a, almost felt like a full-time job, yet the rest of the school was still going. And I, I think the key was just making sure you had a good team of people, people you trust, people that know your values. So when you're not there, people would know, you know, what would Pete do right now? <laughs> What would Mike do right now in this yeah. situation? It was very stressful, but it was very rewarding at the same time because so oftentimes as an educator, you're not seeing the actual growth. Yeah. But when you see a new school go up and you see the kids actually have space and, and opportunities to participate in programs they hadn't been able to, yeah. there's a certain reward to that tangibleness. 
And what about the inspiration to go into school administration? Not that many people decide to take that path. And being a classroom teacher is a tremendously rewarding experience. As you mentioned, when you are in school administration, you are further away from the kids. Earlier on in your career, what prompted that sort of decision? I would probably say the first thing is that feeling that you want to be able to be of influence to the people that you're with. Mm -hmm. So when I was a teacher, I felt I want to do whatever I can to help the growth of that small group. And, and I got through that I'm away from the kids with the feeling that I'm going to impact and improve their environment. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to help the 300 kids at the yeah. elementary school. So I think that's the mental piece I got through by just feeling as I'm doing this bureaucratic thing, <laughs> you feel at the end of the day, that's going to help that little first grader yeah. have a better atmosphere. It's so similar to, I guess, my approach too, is that that, that's what my interest was. I went from my sort of teaching practicum, we called it. It was the last sort of six weeks of my teacher education. And I was in a place which is called Wollongong, which is south of Sydney, this really beautiful area on the coast. And I went into this school and it was like magic. People were happy and everyone felt connected and it just was quite remarkable. And then I got my first teaching gig and I went up to this public school in the north shore of of Sydney. Beautiful. It's where my mum grew up, right on the beach and everything. And the principal was a tyrant, right? Like he was just unkind to people. I believe it or not, had long hair at the time. He'd come in and yell at me to get my, <laughs> get your hair cut, you know, and he'd sort That's of like in funny. front of the kids. I went from this environment where I was feeling like really nurtured and supported as a student teacher to just belittled and quite scared. I remember going, I just can't do this. It was just too hard, you know, but, you know, I got through it. And in the end, like I learned a ton of lessons about leadership from this person who wasn't very good, but that was also the impetus to me as a leader or leaders at a school can really make a huge difference in terms of how people feel and therefore how kids learn. One of the the reasons I was excited to speak with you today is that you are now one of the new trustees. You've accepted the offer to serve on our board. And what inspired you to become a trustee? I would say the number one thing, just the interest of in my life at this time of being of service. It's like using whatever God-given gifts you've been given and, and how to make sure you're utilizing them to help people. I also feel like this is a special place and mm-hmm. and it's nice to be part of something strong and special. This is a a great school and a great team. And probably at the end of the day, I've got a first grader grandchild, Charlotte, and a TK granddaughter, Kennedy, and wanting them to have the best opportunities possible. And and I found ultimately the schools get better from having the teachers be focused on the students. And I always felt that if administrators remove obstacles and problems from the teachers, they'll focus on the kids. And as a headmaster, if you focus on keeping obstacles away from the administ- other administrators, they'll be focused. And I think as a board, if we can do our best to make sure that we're keeping obstacles away from the headmaster, helping provide resources and have the person's back. Yeah. Probably those fundamentals are the, the things that are important to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great answer. I've worked in independent schools nearly 20 years, and it's amazing 
even though the board can sometimes feel rather distant from the school, like you don't necessarily see the people here every day, they have just a tremendous impact on a school's success. And we're very fortunate that we have terrific board members and people who are very committed and people like you and Tequila and Bob who have volunteered to be part of that. I underestimated before I became a school administrator just how tremendously impactful a really great board can be on a school. The next question before I have other questions about school leadership is, what do you love most about being a grandparent? I think that when I was working in my school career, I got married when I was in college and worked, 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 worked on my master's when I was in my early 20s and getting your doctorate before you're 30 and switching administrative jobs. I feel that maybe I was not as always present for my two sons. And and I, I think what's nice about being retired, we have time to be present for Charlotte and Kennedy. And it's nice maybe at this time in our life, it's nice to see their unfiltered joy when they're with you. And probably as one ages, you need to be around people that are happy. Yeah, it's a beautiful answer. That's a a struggle I think that a lot of people have in all careers is just, is trying to balance the family aspect and just trying to be there for your family, but also building a career. And it takes just a tremendous amount of time and, and energy and effort. What advice do you have for people trying to balance those two things? Whether this is good for every family, it worked for us. Pam and I divided our duties. Pam was a stay-at-home mom, homemaker for the bulk of the boys schooling through middle school. Mm -hmm. That allowed her to pay attention to the boys and do some of those activities and help support me with my stressful position. And we were able to keep some serenity in the household. Mm -hmm. So Pam is great at that. I think maybe we did without some financial things. We, mm-hmm. we, we probably did some sacrificing yeah. by not having the biggest house, the best car. But we felt that we, what we did have was more peace at our household. What did you do your PhD on? What was the thesis? At the time, in in 1988, the American Association of School Administrators had eight performance goals and 52 competencies to be an effective superintendent. And a Texas A&M doctoral student did a survey of superintendents and said, can you rank order these skills? And I did the uh, educational administrators from around the country. We looked at all of those AASA performance goals that are the top things you needed. And the interesting conclusion was you needed to have great communication and interpersonal skills Mm. over curriculum knowledge, technology knowledge, and other knowledge. And then we looked at all of the curricula throughout the country for educational administration programs, and no one offered a class (laughs) on communication and interpersonal skills. And it's something I always felt would be the most important piece Mm. of someone's job. But it was interesting to see that backed up in, in research. That is fascinating. Even when I think about teaching and teacher training, I had no training in classroom management, how to set homework or the value of homework, and also communicating with parents. And then I became a classroom teacher. My main job yeah. was classroom management, <laughs> assigning homework and, and working with parents. And and then when I did my master's in education administration, this was in the 2000s, I don't think we touched on 
interpersonal relationships or communication, either in their things that I've learned by working with really great mentors. Isn't that interesting? Is that different now? From my 23 years as a school superintendent, I would say hands down, the ability to talk to a parent, communicate, understanding their point of view, and have the people skills to communicate with them was the most essential thing for success. Yeah. I really like what you did last fall when you were focusing on emotional intelligence with students. That was Mm -hmm. something that every time I read your work and listened to the resources you provided, it just resonated how important it was for Charlotte and Kennedy. Yeah. And this summer, we watched the girls three days a week and had a little grandma summer camp, but we used those emotional intelligence pieces for the girls. Oh, great. Because we felt... The girls are always going to be good students. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to know how to do reading, writing, and arithmetic. But I think their ultimate success is going to be from their ability to be resilient yeah. and manage their own selves. I've been very fortunate to work with exceptional mentors and one that was incredibly formative. I started working in independent school when I was just turned 26, Sydney Grammar School, 100 and now 170 years old. And I had this mentor, her name's Rowena Lee. And she was my division head when I was teaching second grade. And then she became the head of school. It was an all-boys school. She said, we're in the business of growing great men. And so how do you grow great men? There was a high youth suicide rate of young men in Australia. How do we combat this? Right? A lot of it was about your inner voice and things such as uh, catastrophizing. There's just this, these different programs we do with the kids because it was like they come from great families. They're well-educated, but we want them to grow into humans that are going to make a tremendous impact. And then by sheer fluke, I got my first teaching job in the US after I moved to America. My mentor at a school called the Nueva School was the head of their social emotional learning department. And that school was featured in Daniel Goldman's book, Emotional Intelligence. The work that they were doing there was nationally known. And then the people at that group has then gone on to create the Institute for Social Emotional Learning. And I've worked with them at other schools. And so I just was very fortunate to work with people who opened my eyes to just how vitally important it is to teach young people to manage their emotions, to be able to deal with adversity because life is hard, you know, school is hard, work is hard, relationships are hard, and you need strategies and tools to be able to manage it. Yeah, Yeah. we do know for sure we're going to have turbulence in our life. Sometimes as the pilot, (laughs) you're going to have some smooth sailing, (laughs) but ultimately there's going to be some turbulence. Yeah, yeah, the resources you have been providing uh, the families has been tremendous. You've been a very successful leader in in education, but I've been a, a student of leadership for a long time and have mentors who are in and outside of education, but many of the tools are quite universal. For universal. So how do you define leadership? The ability to guide a team to achieve a goal. And I think it comes from having some type of collective vision, not always your own vision, but the collective vision of the team and communicating that vision to other people, and then have the skills to make that vision a reality. I like that phrase, the best leader's job is done when the people said they did it themselves. Nice. Yeah. What about when you were going through your career? Like, Who were some mentors or leaders that you really looked up to that you learned a lot from? I was very fortunate that my first job had a school superintendent, Don Strong, that I was a first-year teacher in a district with 10,000 students, but he somehow met up with me and sat me down early on, and he wanted me to make sure that don't wait till you want to become a principal. 
because as soon as you want to become one, it's going to take you four or five years <laughs> to take the coursework. So he had me starting taking graduate work the first year I was teaching. That's impressive. So that when the, ta- yeah. when the time came, oh, I'm ready to do this now. Yeah. So it was always, if you want to be a principal five years from now, you better start classes tomorrow. Those leaders in those schools gave me the opportunity to teach, but also chair a committee on textbook adoption and, and small things like that that you then leveraged into more experiences after they saw you and trusted you. What do you feel makes a good leader? I still go back to just people being good communicators. Whenever I had a problem, it was you need to make sure the right people hear the right information in the right order. Mm. So making sure that the sequencing of your communication was right. So a teacher didn't learn about an adverse personnel thing through the grapevine. Mm. You know, something we always focused on was high standards for making sure people are good communicators. Probably the other thing is focusing on the growth of the individual, maybe back to my special ed days, making sure whoever was working with us, we helped that person grow and everyone has different things they need to grow on and everyone grows at different rates, but making sure growth was there. And I think probably making sure that you built a team that had the same core values. And if you looked at the administrative staff I worked with, it would be every background, ethnicity, personality trait, but every single person had those same core values. And I think that diversity of thought was there, but you had that same core values, and and that was important. Someone said to me once that a, a true leader develops leaders who go on and develop other leaders. And I've been very lucky, again, to work with some terrific leaders. And one of the things that gives me great pride is that I'm sort of part of their lineage and I've been successful developing other leaders and they're going on to do the same then. Now, as you know, it's a hard job and it's very, very lonely sometimes. And so if you can prepare people for it, it's incredible the impact it can make. And you very kindly said some wonderful things about Davidson Day, but just more broadly, as you were looking to develop schools or as you walk into them, what are the elements of a, of a great school? What's interesting, it's an overused term, but you can feel yeah. the culture and the climate immediately. Mm-hmm. You can tell right away when you walk in the school what the vibe is. I look for well-roundedness. Mm. We always talked about promoting excellence in academics, athletics, the arts, and service to others. Mm-hmm. I like that concept that kids get exposed to, to all things. That's an important piece to me. And probably that focus just on individual growth, mm-hmm. that making sure that we take every child and they're all going to learn at a different rate. Yeah. And making sure we're paying attention to make sure that person's growing and growing and growing. And, and probably the other thing would be Everyone has a certain standard. They have to get over the wall, (laughs) but some kids need seven ladder steps to get over Mm -hmm. that wall, and maybe Elise and Kennedy need three ladder steps to Mm -hmm. get over the wall. I needed 15 ladder steps (laughs) to get over the wall. To have that maintenance of a high standard no matter where you're from, Mm -hmm. no matter what your background is coming to a school, this is what we would be expecting of you, but we're going to provide you that, those resources to get there. One of the the beauties of really great schools is just that ability to expose kids to things that they mightn't or always do. I've met many kids here who have been involved in theatre, involved in service learning, involved in athletics, really strong academically as well. And just that ability to 
try different things. That's what the beauty of here is that you can be in the band, but also play sports and then be on student council yes. and, and things. And I just like the way that that promotes these people who can advocate for themselves. I will certainly learn that skill much, much later. It's interesting when you hear from the uninformed, maybe older people feeling that kids nowadays, you know, don't know anything. I shake my head. These kids are so impressive. The mathematics they know, the people skills they have, the yeah. technology skills. It's, it's just amazing when you're actually with with young people these days. Mm -hmm. They inspire and impress me. Yeah. I'm teaching this entrepreneurial class with Mr. Palmer and Mark has this wonderful idea of starting off with like, what's something that you've seen in the news that's on your mind that you'd like to talk about? And what the kids bring up is often really fascinating. And then just their views on it and the way they've thought it through and willing to listen to others. I'm like, wow, I, I feel the world's in good hands with the young people who are coming through. One thing we've not talked about is that you're the founder and president of Catalyst Academy and that the organization provides personal financial education, individual coaching, advocacy work for people in need of support with their finances. Why did you decide to start Catalyst Academy? Pam and I, when we retired, I felt I didn't want to just sit on a beach and I didn't want to just play golf. I felt like I've always prayed for having a balanced life. Mm. When you're working, how many hours you work in a day, just having a balanced life. And part of that was is, is back to that service to other people. We started Catalyst Academy probably from a personal journey. We had a lot of financial problems as a family, Pam and I. We got married in college, started working on my master's. She was a stay-at-home mom. Then I went and got my doctorate. She was a stay-at-home mom. And probably because we weren't paying attention developed a lot of student loan debt and credit card debt. Pam is one of nine kids, wow. and she was number six. So they didn't get, get a lot of financial help, training. And then my dad uh, had a 15-year-old mom. That was him and his mom growing up. So he never got any financial training. As we fixed our personal finances, when I became superintendent, we would be offering classes to our teachers after school. And we used one one-hundredth of one percent of our health insurance budget to help pay teachers to come to these activities. And what we found was if we can just get one teacher off Xanax or get them off ulcer medicine, the program would pay for itself. And what we found was there's such a direct connection between financial stress and your health problems. Mm. And that was the mindset we had for the school district. So we had a lot of support from the teachers doing it. And when Pam and I retired, we said, let's start up a nonprofit. And we're working with some of the local charter schools, like Norman Charter, Pine Lake Prep, Lincoln Charter, and provide programs for their teachers. That's amazing. How did you get yourself out of that financial hole? Probably first, I think, just paying attention mm -hmm. and then working, working, working. And I was blessed because I would be getting promotions. Yeah. And, you know, with each promotion, we didn't raise our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. We just paid down whatever student loan debt we had. It was a, a real journey. And I think one of the things that helps me when I talk to people is they would, you know, as they share any challenge they're having, it's, oh, Mike gets it. Yeah. Mike understands. Mike's not judging me. Mm -hmm. 
So as, as I do speeches at a school, they know that it's hard to tell that story from myself. But you know what? Maybe this guy knows what he's talking about because yeah. he's been there. So, What are some of the things that you're teaching the teachers? Like at Lincoln Charter this year, the superintendent's going to have, they have to spend one of their professional development hours doing a Catalyst Academy program. Oh, wow. So we came up with a series of classes, mm-hmm. retirement planning, children and your family budget, wills, trusts, and I have a group of talented people that help me with presentations, or they would sign up for individual coaching sessions. So I would have once a month a conference room, mm-hmm. and teachers would sign up for a 30-minute appointment, and we'd just sit privately and talk about what their concern is. It's also people getting them off on the right foot. Yeah. Hey, yeah. you're 22 years old. You got your first job. Let's get a budget. <laughs> Let's yeah. put some money away for retirement. Good fundamentals. So that's helping people, whatever their goals with their personal finances. Yeah. I mean, thanks for being so open and honest about this. And it's such an invaluable thing that you're doing. So I made many mistakes early on financially. I grew up in a very sort of blue collar family, not a lot of money or sort of financial education. And then I got my first teaching job and I was earning 26000 a year and I thought it was a wise idea to buy a $15,000 new car <laughs> and, you know, put myself in sort of debt straight away. Soon after realized I got a ton to learn about personal finance. I realized very quickly by the time we're paying rent, my wife is American. She'd moved back to Australia. We'd met at college. She wasn't able to work for visa restrictions. She had, there was a certain period of time before she could. We're supporting two people in their young 20s on 26000 a year. And even though this was 20-odd years ago, it was really tough. And so I just, I mean, believe in knowledge. And, and I just read as much as I could a ton of financial books, worked for a nonprofit and got some advice that way. It took some time, but just to turn that sort of boat around, there were times where we were very, very, very stressed about money, especially we moved to the US in 2008. We had a lot of our money in Australian dollars because the Australian dollar was stronger than the US dollar. The stock market crash happened. We lost, like we just moved here, didn't have jobs. We lost half our money sort of overnight because it was still in Australian currency. And suddenly we'd spend all these years saving all this money, it just vanished overnight. We'd moved to San Francisco to be near her family, very expensive. Chris was pregnant soon after with Ruby and it was hard, you know, I'm earning less money as a teacher than I did in Australia. And then it was just like, man, we need to sort of start turning this around, those principles back, using them again and working them harder. But all that to say is that knowledge saved us, you know, and really helped us out. But unless you have that, it's... It can be very, very, very stressful. And the knowledge isn't that deep. It's just like probably being healthy. It's simple, but not easy. Yeah. (laughs) Pay attention. Spend less than you make. Yeah. You have a written budget. Yeah. Put the money away for a rainy day. Yeah. So it's just probably just like with health. It's just having that discipline to do it. It's not something I talk about a lot, but I'm just really obsessed with personal finance and, and how to improve that because you work for a limited period of time. Things like compound interest can work in your favor. But a plug I have is something that we've found tremendously helpful. It's an app. It's either on your phone, your computer. It's called YNAB. You need a budget. Yes. Uh, You know it? Yes. Yeah. We've got one of our board members, CPA, and she's like a super user of YNAB. And and we've actually worked with YNAB to get free one-year subscriptions so that when we do a training, then, hey, we're going to show you what this works 
works, yeah. how it works, and then we'll give you a, a subscription. I'd be interested in just some success stories that you've seen like by doing this work over time, like helping teachers with their finances. Sometimes people come for one session and that's all they need. Mm-hmm. And others talk to me on their commute back home and say, Dr. Sass, it's Black Friday. I did not go out and buy that television. You know, <laughs> just just even that personal yeah. that connection, I think, is 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 wonderful. Or somebody that wants to celebrate and they'll call me three years later to say, you know, that student loan I had, it's all paid off. Or, hey, doc, I got my down payment saved. I can't believe I'm going to be in my own house now. Mm -hmm. So those topics just come up time and time again. And everyone's not always at the right stage of their life or time of their life. But we want to make sure that we're available to people when they're ready to make that change. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Probably the one that comes out to me is Jesus CEO by Lori Beth Jones. Okay. It's like a one or two page a day you read. Okay. And it talks about self-mastery, be a person of action, and have good relationships. And it gives a story of life. Then there's a little Bible reference. Oh. And this is what Jesus did to be a good leader. What are some things you love doing in your free time? say walking and hiking. I wish I could say playing sports still, but I probably enjoy watching sports, <laughs> football the most. The Bears are my team. In college, uh, my son Eric, he went to Notre Dame oh. and his mom Maggie went to Clemson. Oh. So it's interesting to see when you see a Clemson-Notre Dame game. Yeah. Maggie's whole family went to Clemson. So it's like 25 people in a room and then Eric. So <laughs> a little bit outnumbered. Yeah, so, yeah. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? I'd probably say I know how to play chess, but I probably would like to learn chess. I feel like I love the concept of learning strategies and thinking. My health should ever suffer down the road or I become more sedentary. I think that would be a great way to keep your brain and mind sharp. I'm a bit of a chess fanatic. There's a fantastic app called chess.com. I can sit for hours and you play people from all around the world. I love chess. In the last five years, what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life? I'd say making that balanced life goal of Mm -hmm. reality, serving others, doing some work to help the community and and having time for myself. And maybe the other side one would be more gratitude. I Mm -hmm. lost the vision in my right eye with a retina detachment just before I retired and didn't have vision in one eye for two months, and the other eye was ready to detach. And I thought at one point I would be blind the rest of my life. And through wonderful surgeons, I have wonderful vision now. But it's interesting how that makes me wake up every morning grateful. And maybe I needed more of that in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. Yeah, I think maybe I wasn't meant to be disabled at this time. Yeah. And it kind of motivates you to, to be working and helping people. And what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Just jumping in and start getting involved with kids early on. Um, I know I didn't get to do that. And I think you will learn if you're a natural teacher or not. And it's an art and a science. Mm -hmm. And start early and find some good mentors like you had mentioned earlier in the conversation. And taking risks. You know, while you're teaching, try to see how you can, can grow in other areas of of the education world. 
And then the final question is, what inspires you? It's interesting. This is not coming from a point, a place of envy, but I, I'm appreciative of the talents that people have when they have mastery of something, whether it's a chess player, like you had mentioned, a football player, an artist, and just seeing someone that has mastered their craft. When I see that, that always inspires me. And 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 seeing someone took their God-given talent and then probably worked ten thousand hours yeah. to develop that skill, and that impresses me and inspires me. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I've really, really loved this. It's, uh, we're so fortunate to have you and your family as part of our community. So thanks for all you're doing. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.